We're reading in the Torah these days about the coming out of Egypt or the, uh, the need to come out of Egypt so far, out of the slavery, out of the, the enslavement of Egypt. And of course, we celebrate that on Pesach with the Seder. And the Seder is composed of many uh, significant components. One of the components are the four cups. We drink four cups of wine. Of course, we also add a fifth, but we won't talk about that. Let's talk about four. Rambam writes, quoting the Gemara, that the four cups correspond to the four expressions of redemption. When God promised to redeem us, he used four different terms. I will take you, I will free you, I will save you, I will bring you. The fourth is, I will take you. Meaning, I will take you to, uh, to Israel, to be my people. Because of that, there are other things as well on Pesach night that come in the number four, like the four sons, the four questions, because the theme of the evening is the redemption. And the redemption comes in four layers. The question then becomes, if that is the case, then it is very surprising that the, that the most significant object or objects on the Seder table, the matzah comes in threes, not in four. So if the theme of the Seder is the redemption, why don't we have four matzahs? Now, I know matzah is expensive, but that's not a good excuse. We should have four matzahs, just as we have four cups, four questions, four sons. So it must be that the three matzahs are also representative of redemption. They also correspond to, to redemption, but for some reason in the amount of three. The Rebbe explained it once this way. The four expressions of redemption are not all alike. The first three speak only of God. I will bring, I will free, I will save. It doesn't say anything about the people. The fourth one, I will take you. There it says, I will take you and you will become my people. Essentially, the fourth expression of redemption is really the result or the consequence of the first three. And technically speaking, Properly speaking, the fourth expression of redemption didn't really happen on Pesach. When did we become his people? When did he take us and make us his people? At Mount Sinai, on Shavuos, which is 50 days later, after the coming out of Egypt. So the first three expressions of redemption have to do literally with getting out of Egypt. The fourth one has to do with what will you become after you're out of Egypt? And that really happened on Shavuos. So it's, we're mixing holidays here. The significance of it is that in every event, in every phenomenon in creation and existence, there are two parts. There's the giving, let's call it the benevolence, and then there's the receiving the beneficiary or the 
receiver, the light and the vessel. Whatever God does for us, that's the beneficence. That's, he's the benefactor. He is the light. He is the giver. We are the receiver. For some reason, God created the world in such a way that everything is composed of the giving and the receiving, the light and the vessel. In fact, there are two terms in Hebrew for capacity, ability. When somebody is gifted in a certain capacity, there are two words in Hebrew. And yet they both mean talent. I don't know if there's an equivalent in English. But let's call it talent and gift. So a person is an artist. What does he have? He has a talent and he has a gift. Don't look this up in the dictionary, because the dictionary definition is not going to be the same. But for our purposes, what does it mean to be an artist? Let's say uh, a painter. What the painter does, he has a vision, he sees something, and he wants to transfer that vision onto canvas or into uh, marble, if he's a sculptor. Now, if he does it successfully, we will say talented man, gifted, an artist. But in order for that to happen, he has to be adept at two things. Number one, he has to be able to capture the inspiration or the, the vision that creates the work of art. That's the light. Secondly, his physical ability to translate that into actual lines and colors and shapes has to be gifted as well. In other words, he has to be gifted in his light and he has to be gifted in his vessel. You have people who are very gifted in one, but not so gifted in the other. Even in speech, there are really two distinct talents. Number one, you have to have something to say, something interesting, something unusual, something original, something uh, insightful that the average person doesn't, doesn't think of. But that's not enough. You have brilliant professors who are useless because nobody understands what they're saying. Because their ability to house those thoughts in words doesn't happen. Their problem is not with the idea. Their problem is with the presentation, with the vessels into which these ideas have to uh, settle. Other people, on the other hand, are the exact opposite. Everything they say is absolutely brilliantly clear and interesting, but they don't have anything significant to say. So they have a great ability with their vessel, with the tool, but not with the substance that's supposed to fill those tools and those vessels. And that's why there are two distinct words for the gifted. A gift, just using the English word, a gift means you have a lot to offer, and talent means you are very capable, it comes easy to you to capture that ability or that gift in physical 
whether it's words or colors or lines or whatever. We might call it the art and the science. Some people have the art, but they don't have the science. A doctor can have great diagnostic abilities, but he doesn't know how to fix it. And some doctors know how to fix anything if you tell them what's wrong, because they can't figure it out. Now, in creation, God created a world made up of light and vessel. In the elevation of the world, in the progress of creation, the light and the vessel have to merge. The more they merge, the godlier, the holier the world becomes. The further apart they are, the more ungodly the world is, the more unholy, the more evil, and so on. When God takes us out of Egypt, two things are happening. He is revealing something that is original, unseen, unknown, that did not exist in the world before. And that's why those days in which he did that, those days are permanently changed. They are now holy days. They weren't before. The 15th day of Nisan, before the Jews came out of Egypt, was not a holy day. Now it is. So God revealed, God gave, God unleashed a godliness and a holiness that had never existed before. And that created all that turmoil in Egypt. On the other side, we were the recipients. We needed to receive this, this gift. We needed to absorb it. Because to receive means to respond, to react, to be transformed by what we're receiving. Otherwise, we didn't really get it. Like you can hear something and you didn't really hear it. So did you hear it or didn't you hear it? No, not really. Did you get it or you didn't get it? So in order to be a recipient, to be a keli, to be the vessel, it's not enough that what God gives is now present in you. So the vessel or the receiver cannot be passive. He has to respond. He has to react. He has to be changed by what he receives. Otherwise, he didn't get it. Like they say about, there are three things that must affect you. Money, liquor, and studying Hasidus. Now, there are people who have money and they're not affected. Problem is, they don't have enough money. Give them more, they'll be affected. Some people drink and they're not affected. It's only because they didn't drink enough. If they drink a little more, they're going to be affected. It's just a matter of how much. And the same is true with the study of Hasidus. If you're not affected, it's because you don't have enough. But it must have an effect. There must be a change. There must be a difference from before and after. Otherwise, nothing happens. Now, there's a virtue in the, get, in the giving, and there's a virtue in the receiving. Obviously, what God gives is much greater and much higher than what we receive, because we can only receive some part of what he gives. And that's always true. No matter how much I try to express myself, and no matter how well I express myself, you're only going to hear some part of it. You're not going to hear it all. So the gift of communication is also its own limitation. Because we communicate in words, 
words can't convey everything I mean, particularly if I'm conveying an emotion. You convey an emotion in words. The words reveal what you're feeling, but they also limit that revelation so that the hearer is only going to hear part. He's not going to hear the whole thing. And that's why when you really want to get across your emotion, (laughs) you don't speak rationally, you scream like a banshee. Then they know how upset you are, but then they don't know what you're upset about. So that also has a problem. (laughs) So words both reveal and limit, because they're vessels. So what is the virtue of that which we are being given? It's that it's infinite. When God gives us, he gives us on his level. Obviously, that's much higher than our level. And we will receive as much as we're capable of receiving. On the other hand, that which is given has a big problem. It doesn't produce the result that is desired, the desirable result. God doesn't give just to show off. He didn't send 10 plagues against Egypt just to show how powerful he was. One tsunami would have been much more impressive and depressive. (laughs) He wasn't showing off. He was trying to have an effect. An effect means a change. The problem is that that which is given doesn't really change the receiver. It overwhelms him. It envelops him in holiness. It uh, inspires the receiver to rise above what his normal condition would be, but it doesn't last. As we see even in the giving of the Torah, God came down in in a very awesome, unlimited revelation of himself, and we were completely overwhelmed by that revelation, But 40 days later, we were not so impressed. And we made a golden calf. This is the problem with the inspiration that doesn't settle in and have an effect on the vessel. Gemara says that faith is one of those lights that are missing vessels. It's like the brilliant professor who can't speak clearly. So faith, when it moves a person, is very powerful. There's nothing more powerful. I don't know if you heard about this, but there are people who would actually kill themselves based on their faith. They would blow themselves up. Without faith, people don't do that. Only faith can be so powerful that it literally annihilates you because it is so much more powerful than you that you surrender to it and you lose your existence, then blowing yourself up, really, you're already gone anyway. The faith is so strong that you're not you anymore anyway, so the blowing up is the easy part. That's the effect of faith. Avraham was able to sacrifice his son because of his faith. Faith is so powerful, it overwhelms all restrictions, all even the natural love of a father to a son, everything is overwhelmed and uh, nullified by faith. 
if the faith is strong enough. On the other hand, the Gemara says that a person of great faith who believes in God and believes that nothing can succeed without God's blessing because nothing can happen without God wishing it to happen. Therefore, before he tries to, uh, to accomplish something, he prays that God should give him success because he believes in God. But then it is also possible that this person who prays to God for success in his uh, endeavor, turns out that his endeavor is to rob a bank, to steal, to kill. But he wants success, so he turns to God. So the question is, if he has such strong faith that God hears his prayers and that you need God's help, otherwise you don't succeed in anything, and that only God can make things work the way you want him to work, if you have all of that faith, why are you violating his commandment? That is the nature of faith. It comes from above. It doesn't define who you are, because it's not about you. So he has the faith, and yet he remains a criminal. You would think faith would make a person honest. No, honesty is a character in the, in the human being. Faith does not make you generous. Generous is a quality in the human being. It's your character. Faith is not your character. Faith comes from above, from outside of you, from something bigger than you, to which you surrender your character. It is not your character. True faith. Now, there are people who manufacture their own faith. That's a whole different story. <laughs> then it's not real faith. It's their own little religiosity. They've got some agenda going. That's nothing. That's TV preacher. But real faith is something bigger than you to which you surrender. But surrender doesn't mean that you've changed. So you can bow to somebody and hate his guts. I bow to you because you're so much more powerful than me. But I don't like you. So on the one hand, faith has all the power. On the other hand, it does not transform the recipient. The value or the virtue of the recipient is that it may not be so powerful. Human character is not as powerful as faith. No matter how generous you are, it's not as powerful an energy as faith can be. No matter how moral you are, it can't be as powerful as faith. But on the other hand, it has the virtue, it is you. So it's not something besides you, outside of you, not something you're experiencing from the outside. It is you. So if you become a little more generous, you have become a different person. If you become a little more moral, it's not something is happening to you. You are becoming different. And once you have moved yourself to a more generous condition, you will remain that way. It's not going to disappear 40 days later. Because it's you. In fact, if afterwards you find out that you really shouldn't be so generous, you're going to have a hard time stopping yourself from being generous. 
because it has become you. In order for the redemption to be complete, we have to have these two things. We have to have the limitless power of what God gives, and we have to have the permanence of what our reaction or response to that gift is. That's why you have to have four things in order to have redemption. You have to have what is given, and you have to have the response. The response is represented by the fourth expression, You will be my people. That describes what is going to happen to you, how you're going to respond, how you're going to change, how you're going to absorb what God is revealing and giving. But that can't exist by itself. The change in me has to be in response to what God is telling me, showing me, and giving me. That's why there are four expressions. Three of them, what God is giving me, and the fourth is my response. But I can't have my response separated from the first three. So there have to be four cups, not a fourth cup. All four. On the other hand, that which God does for me is only three. Because the one thing God cannot do is take away my freedom of choice. So God can only do three. He can't do the fourth. If God does the fourth, if God makes me different, then he's taken away my freedom of choice. And again, it's not me anymore. Then it's him again. So the fourth step, only you can do. God can't do it. So God's part is stops after the third. And that's why you have to have three matzah. You can't have four matzahs. Because the matzah represents the part that God gives in the redemption. Which part of redemption comes from God? The being saved, the being taken, the being uh, redeemed. God does that. That's why we have three matzahs. But in order for it to have the effect on us, we have to have a fourth, a fourth dimension, but connected to the first three. So the wine that represents our response has to have four cups, not three matzahs and one cup of wine, which would add up to four. But the four has to be a set. So there has to be four cups of wine. But the matzah has to have its own set. Therefore, there are only three matzah. But all of them represent redemption. What's really fascinating is that everything in Torah is true. And therefore, it has to be true from every angle. It's not just a cute idea. Numerically, in the wisdom and meaning of numbers, in Kabbalah and in the Remez part of Torah, the numbers three and four represent giver and receiver. Gimel, the Hebrew number Gimel, literally means giver, like Gimilas Chesed. The number four in Hebrew is Dalid, which literally means the poor man. So Gimel Dalid means give to the poor. 
What is the difference between the giver and the receiver? One is light, the other is the vessel. And that's why, how do you know whether you've really given properly? By judging the effect on the receiver. So maybe I've mentioned the story before. A man came to the Alta Rebbe many, many years ago. And he had a spiritual dilemma. He was a wealthy man and he gave a lot of charity and he was very hospitable. His home was always open. People were always eating at his table. But he wanted to be a better Jew. So he came to the Alta Rebbe and he said he's very disturbed. He's very uncomfortable because... He doesn't know for sure that his generosity is 100% sincere. He can't tell whether his tzedakah and his generosity is true, real. The Al-Tarebbe, the way the story goes is that the Al-Tarebbe thought about it. And then the Rebbe said to him, the hungry man who eats at your table, his enjoyment is sincere and true. What is the answer to the question? The man said, how will I know, how can I tell that my generosity is sincere, real, genuine? Now, if you think about it, what was he really asking for? He wants to be able to tell how real his generosity is. A certain feeling, a certain experience, a certain satisfaction that comes from having done it for real, that's actually going in the wrong direction. You are generous, which is beautiful. Now you want some feedback that will make you feel good or satisfied or or rewarded for having been truly generous? Well, now you're not truly generous anymore. Now you're looking for a reward. So the spiritual satisfaction of some feeling that would tell him that his generosity is for real would ruin his generosity, would corrupt it. So the Rebbe said to him, what makes generosity real? Your experience or what it does for the poor man? Generosity is not about you. It's about him. Now, when he eats the food, is he only making believe that he's enjoying it? He's enjoying it for an ulterior motive? (laughs) He's enjoying it to impress you? No. His enjoyment is 100% real. What more do you want? But the the philosophical significance behind it is that giving is not complete unless the receiver, the recipient, has changed. So a teacher who says, well, I've taught my lesson. I got up there, I taught my kids, I showed them, I told them. They don't listen? Well, that's their problem or their parents' problem. So we're teaching them values, we're teaching them right from wrong, we're showing them the right path. They don't listen? I did my job. And the answer is no, you didn't. Gimel Dalid, give to the poor, is not satisfied if the Dalid remains a Dalid. 
The giving is complete when the Dalit becomes a hey. Now you know you really gave. But if there's a Gimel and a Dalit and the Dalit is still a Dalit, then you haven't given. It's not the Dalit's fault that he's still poor. It's the teacher's fault. El Tadebbe says in Tanya that the Gemara says that there are certain people, certain individuals, who although you have a mitzvah to love your fellow Jew, but there are certain Jews you have to hate. It's a mitzvah to hate them. Now some people who uh, look into the Gemara remember only that. That's the only thing that left an impression on them. Oh, hate. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'll do that part. I can't be completely orthodox, but that mitzvah (laughs) I will fulfill thoroughly. So the Altadebbe writes in Tanya, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Don't take it out of context. The Gemara is saying that if you have a friend who you went to school with, has studied and has knows is as educated as you are, and yet he sins, and you've rebuked him, and he still doesn't stop sinning, then it's a mitzvah to hate him. So the Al-Tadeb in Tanya is putting a, a big restriction on this, on this mitzvah. It doesn't apply to anybody you don't like. It only applies to someone who is your equal in the knowledge of Torah, and he's sinning, and you rebuked him, and he's still sinning, okay, now you can hate him. Now the, the Rebbe took it a step further. The Alta Rebbe says it's restricted to people who you've rebuked, but they're still sinning. So the Rebbe says, if you rebuke and they're still sinning, maybe it's your fault. You're not a good rebuker. Now take a course. Rebuking. So if you tell him, if you try to inspire him not to sin, and he is still sinning, why do you assume that the fault is with him? Maybe the fault is with you. So when the Altarebbe says you can hate him if you've rebuked him and he's still sinning, that's only if you can be sure that the rebuke was proper and it should have affected him, and if it doesn't, the man is beyond hope. But if it's possible that your rebuke is not so effective, that it's your problem, then you don't have permission to hate him. Because the fact that he's still sinning is because you don't know how to inspire anybody. (laughs) Because you're not saying the right things. So if you don't have the effect you're supposed to have, it means you're not giving what you're supposed to give. Except in that rare case where it's that guy you're supposed to hate. It's always the same guy. It's one guy. That is the significance of the three matzah and the four cups of wine and why the Gemara, the Rambam, has to say that the four cups of wine represent the four expressions of redemption and they don't say anything about the significance of the matzah. You would think, since there are three matzah, just as you explain why there are four cups, you should tell me why there are three matzah. And nobody says anything about the matzah. The Gemara doesn't say, Rambam doesn't say. 
But why are there four cups? Oh, there are four cups because... Wait, what about the three matzah? So traditionally, the custom is that when we put the matzah on the table, we either attribute it to Kayan uh, Levi Yisrael, or in some customs, it's attributed to Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov. But that's not in the Gemara, and it's not in Rambam. Why don't they feel a need to tell you why there are three matzah? The answer is because the first cup of the four cups is the Kiddush. And that comes at the beginning of the Seder, long before you get to the matzah. That's why people are always saying, you know, when do we eat? <laughs> Getting to be long already. When do we eat? Because between the, four, the first cup of the four cups and the eating of the matzah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So by telling us that the four cups represent the four expressions of redemption, the matzah is covered because the matzah is representative of the redemption. And therefore, there's no need to say, why are there three matzah? In fact, it would be confusing to say, the three matzah represent the redemption, and the four cups represent the redemption. So why? So is it three or is it four? So Rambam says, the four is the number. The significant number at the Seder is four. <laughs> but you can't get the four without three. So the three, obviously, is part of that four. Historically, if we look at uh, the balance between giver and receiver, we see that at the beginning of history, the giver was dominant. The receiver was barely noticeable. As, for example, creation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And who received it? Nobody. There was nobody. And that's why the second chapter in Bereshia says, in the beginning when God created the world and there was nobody to plow or to... The, because in the beginning it was all him. It was all give. There was no taker. Then Adam and Eve came into the picture the sixth, on the sixth day and there was a receiver. Somebody to talk to. They received but not everything. So they blew it a little bit. Then God spoke to Avraham, and Avraham got it. And he spoke to Yitzchak, and Yitzchak heard. And Yaakov did it. And now you had the children of Israel. And then God comes to Mount Sinai, and he speaks to all the people. And we heard. <laughs> doesn't say we got it, it says we heard. As you go through history, the balance begins to shift. The prominence or the attention is more on the receiver than on the giver. Who were the people? The sages, the teachers, the rabbis, the, the, the inspirers, the, the simple Jew who gives his life for God. All of a sudden, the focus is on our response to him rather than what he is revealing to us. And that's why people say, how come uh, recently God doesn't uh, show miracles or talk to people or reveal himself? Because the balance has changed. Of course, God is still revealing himself. But that's not what gets the attention. What gets the attention is our response. And that's why our virtue this late in history is that although we're getting much less 
revelation, the little bit that we are getting is having a bigger effect. And this we see in a number of ways. Back in the olden days, you had immense sages and saints. Nothing can compare to Avraham, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov, to Yosef. Nobody's going to compare with Rabbi Akiva, Hillel. But how many Hillels were there in Hillel's times? A hundred? A thousand? Not more. Today, it's not a question of how great a scholar you are or how big a saint you are. Everybody is Jewish. Everybody studies. Everybody does mitzvahs. That's where the focus is. It's more on our response than on what is being given. Another way of looking at it is, today people are observing mitzvahs. Jews are Jewish. And we say, wow, it's amazing. In spite of all the odds, all the anti-Semitism, the miracle is not that we're still Jewish in spite of anti-Semitism. The real miracle is that we are still Jewish in spite of the fact that we have no reason to be. Jews at Mount Sinai had reason to be Jewish. What are we going to do? Ignore God? He's screaming at you. They had reason to be Jewish. Something was making them Jewish. Ten plagues, splitting of the sea, thunder and lightning, God speaks. If they developed any doubts along the way, the earth opens up, swallows up the bad guys, food falls from heaven, water comes from a rock. Yeah, don't be Jewish. Right. <laughs> and then they come to Israel and, and, and Solomon builds a temple and there are miracles every day. Ten miracles happen in the temple. And besides, Solomon himself. And then there are the prophets running around. Yeah, yeah don't be Jewish. You had reason to be Jewish. Something was making you Jewish. What do we have today? What makes us Jewish? Who makes us Jewish? Why do we do mitzvahs today? And particularly, why do people who were not raised to do it, which would give you a reason, comfort zone, you're used to it, it's a family thing, it's a community thing, but most people who are doing mitzvahs today are not doing it out of a village or a family or a tradition. They're starting fresh. Why? What makes them do this? Where is the revelation that moves their response, that, that inspires their response? It seems like it's more response than revelation, than inspiration. The poor man is doing more than the rich man. Or we are doing a lot with the little that we're getting. So the emphasis and the focus is on the way we receive God, not what God is showing or revealing. And in some way, that is even more impressive. Which means that we are now, historically speaking, completing our Seder. We've already had the three matzahs. We've already had the three cups of wine. Now we are responding. Now it's about the fourth level. It's about the reaction and the change that is taking place in us. So we're ready for the fifth cup.
Once we have changed sufficiently, then God can start a whole new chapter. Then we can graduate to a higher class, to an institution of higher learning, which is the teachings of Mashiach, who will reveal a dimension to Torah that we have no, we have no imagination, we have no comprehension, we have no ability to even describe or begin to describe because it's on a different plane completely. I got a, a, a little personal observation. <clears throat> I was in New York last Shabbos, 10 days ago, and there was this uh, program for uh, students who come from all over the East Coast, Canada, for a weekend in Crown Heights. So I, I, I was speaking there. But one of the uh, women who came for the program was actually hosted in the same house where I was staying, my brother's house. So we, we were eating together Friday night. It was fascinating. This woman is born Filipino from a Filipino family, converted to Judaism about three years ago. She lives in Manhattan. She works in Manhattan. Her father works at the UN. And she told her story. And it's just so typical or so descriptive of what we were talking about a minute ago. How did she get into, into, into Judaism? She was walking in the street, and she saw this crowd. And she said, where, where, where is everybody going? And they said, we're going to Tashlich. It was a group from the local synagogue. It was Rosh Hashanah afternoon, and they were going to the water to do the Tashlich service of throwing your sins into the, into the sea. She says, oh, can I go along? They said, yeah, sure. So she went along. When they got to the water, they were handing out the uh, copies of the prayer. She looked at it, and she has, she has a thing for prayers. She likes poetry. She's a writer. And she... So she had been walking with one of the women of the synagogue. Turns out it was a conservative synagogue. And when they handed her the prayer, she says, when, when do we say this? And this woman from the synagogue, the Jewish woman, says, oh, I don't say it. I make up my own prayer. You would think that this would be a little discouraging for her. Wait a minute. I'm, you know, oh, so, so Judaism is not really so... You don't take it very seriously, right? Her reaction was, you can make up a better prayer than this? <laughs> How talented are you? This is great. You make up better ones than this? So she read the one that was, you know. Then they went back to the synagogue and she hung around. She says, nobody was friendly. Nobody said hello. Nobody asked her anything. You'd think, okay, fine, that's it. She quits. No. She comes back on Shabbos. And she's asking questions. And all she hears is, no, we don't do that. It's okay. We don't keep that. Doesn't bother her at all. She becomes Shomer Shabbos. She's moving on to other... And everything she asks, she's told, ah, that's... <laughs> Until finally she moved on to the Kalbach Shul and then said, you know, uh, this is nice, but, you know, I want something more learning, more instead of the singing, they want more... And eventually... She converted and 
So now they ask her to speak. Jewish groups ask her to speak because she's, I mean, the simplicity. Nothing confused her. It was just very simple. This is Judaism. Okay, what else? Next. All right, next step. That, and, you know, you like it, you don't like it, you are. That didn't phase her at all. So now when she speaks to Jewish groups, she says, what is wrong with you? Don't you know what you are? Here's how she puts it. She says, you're all concerned with ecology. You're all concerned with the environment. And you know that if they cut down the rainforests, life on Earth is over. You cannot have a planet without, without rainforests, without trees. Don't you realize that the same is true with the Jewish people? There can't be a world without Jews. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Why do you act like you don't count? Know who you are. Be who you are. That's amazing. But here's the thing. If I contrast what was going on in the 70s, when I first came to Minnesota and started Beis Chana, to what is going on today in the Jewish scene. In the 60s and the 70s, thousands of Jews, thousands of Jews, went from non-observant to observant. It was the big turning point, at least in the United States, for Judaism. The tide turned. But I remember it distinctly. People came looking for spirituality. They came looking for holiness. They came looking for meaning in their lives. And when they came to a synagogue or to a Chabad house or to Beis Chana or to a Jewish community, they said, how do I get some of the spirituality I see here? And they were told, well, if you want to get the spirituality, you got to keep kosher. You got to do Shabbos. You got to go to the mikvah. You got to give tzedakah. You got to learn some Hebrew. They said, fine. And they did. And they became observant. Today, for the last five years or so, there's a new phenomenon. People are becoming more observant. Everywhere. All over the world. But they don't want to be spiritual. They're not looking for holiness. So where they used to come looking for spirituality and accepting Shabbos, today they come looking for Shabbos. They're going straight to the mitzvah, not the mitzvah as a means to an end. When women today are taught about mikvah and they decide to go to the mikvah, they were not looking for spirituality. They hear about mikvah and they say, oh, okay, let's do mikvah. You talk to people about Shabbos, they say, this is what you have to do? Fine. Done. So there is a directness, there is a clarity of vision that didn't exist 10 years ago. 10 years ago, when a Jew looked at Shabbos, it was like, what for? What will this do? Oh, spiritual. Okay, I like that. Today, they look at Shabbos and say, that's what I want. That's what I, I want, Shabbos. How come nobody ever told me about this before? So when people look at the world today, they say, you know, it's not like it used to be. People are not spiritual. They're not seeking. You know, they're not, they're not deep. They're not... Well, maybe on one hand. But on the other hand, 
there's something more awesome going on. God wants Shabbos, and the Jew in me wants Shabbos. Just like God wants. God doesn't want Shabbos because he likes being spiritual. God doesn't need Shabbos to make him holy. Now we are looking at Shabbos almost with the same view, with the same appreciation as God himself. God looked at Shabbos and said, that's what I want. Today a Jew looks at Shabbos and says, hey, why didn't you tell me? You want to be spiritual? No? Just want Shabbos. This is messianic. This is definitely the fourth expression of redemption, possibly the fifth. A little touch of the fifth. It's got a little, you know, a little taste of the kaisel uh, Eliyahu. It's that fifth cup that you don't even drink. You don't even taste it. And yet it's a part of the Seder and it's godly.